KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol has held its first few public hearings. We want to talk about what we have learned, how it is resonating with the public, and where these hearings fit in U.S. history. So we caught up with Ben Berger. He is an associate professor of political science at Swarthmore College, also executive director of the Lang Center for Civic and Social Responsibility. We have had three sets of hearings as we are talking here uh, on Monday, June 20th, uh, still more to come, but through three, uh, I think they've been provocative. I think they've been very well produced. Uh, they obviously, the January 6th committee obviously has its ducks in a row. I'm curious what have been your takeaways from the first set? Well, yeah, as you said, they're, they're well produced. They're made. It's been remarked that this seems to be the first televised hearing congressional hearing, Senate or, or House uh, committee, that's made specifically with this media environment in mind, knowing that a lot of people are going to watch it asynchronously, whether the whole thing or in short snippets, and knowing that people have shorter attention spans, and it's well produced by TV people. So that certainly is a, 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 you know, a takeaway from it. Also, I got to say, I'm a little more impressed with what they've done and been able to do and the overall strategy than I was anticipating. It doesn't mean I think it's going to achieve all of its aims or be some dramatic change in the American landscape. But a lot of us were saying beforehand, look, everybody knows the facts. It's been a long time since January 6th happened, and we know what's happened. We Everybody's formed their opinions, and nobody's mind is going to be changed. But I feel as though the committee and those who have put this together took their time and are really trying to tell a coherent narrative that people can get their heads around and that appeals to at least the mainstream American public, if not core Trump supporters. And it's interesting to me because I feel like there is almost a sense in these hearings of we talk about them being made for TV. And I think it's not just in the presentation visually, but I feel like they're almost teasing the next episode, like kind of dropping hints what's to come. You know, it's kind of like our infatuation with these true crime documentaries where they kind of keep bringing you in and bringing you in. I I really feel like there's a, a, a part of that, that they kind of set the table for what's going to come in future hearings so that people dig in and want to come back. Oh, no doubt. They're not making this up as they go along, partly because, you know, we may talk in a little while about Watergate and some other hearings that have gone for a very long time. Uh, the Fulbright hearings in Vietnam in the 60s went over months or even years. This is six days. And so they're, they've got to condense down to a very small time period and really then craft something like a miniseries. Somebody commented that it's basically like the length of, of the Tiger King. Was that what it was? The uh, mm -hmm. Right. That, um, it's something like that in terms of length. They've got their, their work cut out for them and they need to do that. The one thing I would observe, though, is that... Um, it's not about real-time viewing and stuff. It's not about teasing folks so that they will come and watch the very next one because maybe as expected, the viewership had, the live viewership has dropped off. I think 20 million, they estimated the first uh, night and then 11 million and 9 million on the two subsequent ones in the daytime. 
And that's sort of to be expected. So it's not as if they're trying to say, you must, we want to get people to tune in this very next time and watch the whole thing. It's more that I think they're thinking about how it's going to look as a whole to somebody in the future or uh, watching it like in that coherent way to get them to kind of stick with it. And it's very artfully done in that way. I'm curious, what do you think will have the bigger impact? Will it be kind of getting people to rethink maybe people that had been dug in on their opinions of what happened and who was, who was to blame, or is it kind of putting a flag in the sand for history and documenting this dark moment in our history and making sure that everything that happened is out there in the proper context so that it can be understood as a society? Where do you think, I mean, I'm sure there's some of both, but which way do you think the scale tips? Yeah, it's such an important question. And people are talking all about that. Like, well, what is the committee's end, end game? I don't think most citizens or viewers really know that or un- understand what it is. Um, and it's not exactly, you know, none of us can know for sure. But first of all, as you were just observing before, it seems like they thought this through. They kind of know what they're aiming to do, whether they achieve it or not. I mean, their end game can't be like to do anything to Trump by themselves. It's not a court of law. I mean, they can make recommendations that criminal charges be pursued, they can make recommendations on policy changes that might be designed to ensure that certain undesirable things don't happen again. But even policy changes, like they don't always have the effects that are intended. If we think back to like 20 years, the 9-11 hearings, they made all kinds of recommendations about ways to improve US security and border security and to promote trust between the US and Muslim populations. And it's not really clear that any of those things have the overall desired effect. So number one, if they do wanna make policy recommendations, first, they've gotta be followed, which isn't a given. And second, those policies have gotta be effective and that's even more uncertain. And that's why what you're saying about history seems to be a more important thing. I would say in the short term, they probably want to highlight a mindset to really illuminate what some people call the big lie to the larger public, not just to watch those who are watching live, but also those who are watching snippets, you know, on their own time. And they probably want to affect upcoming elections. That's true. Right. But Republicans are crying foul about that. Republicans have done that as well with Benghazi hearings uh, and with the Clinton impeachment. So it's nothing that's not a new thing. And it's not uncertain that it'll have the desired effect. Um, But I think they're probably in the short term trying to win over mainstream public opinion, not just Democrats, but independents and some Republicans who might be open, maybe who voted for Donald Trump because they can't stand progressive Democrats, because they can't stand certain things about uh, the federal government, but who didn't necessarily have to be Trump supporters. Uh, Maybe take those back, those people back. I mean, why else would Liz Cheney? And Adam Kinzinger want to participate, except to steer their party in a different direction. So I think those might be the the short-term objectives. And the long-term objective probably has to do with, as you said, history. I mean, Liz Cheney said that directly. It it almost sounded like, you know, the line from Hamilton, that history has its eyes on you. In the opening, uh, her opening statement, uh, she said essentially that. Listen, Donald Trump's not going to be here forever, but those of you who are sticking with him, you know, your dishonor is going to remain. History is going to remember you. And that's a big aspiration and an an important one as well. So we've kind of talked about this, referenced it earlier in the short term. 
how much do you think this is moving the needle with those people in the mainstream, the people that are, you know, I, and this is just anecdotally, some things you read on Twitter and who knows if they're true or not. You do hear some stories of some people that maybe are learning things that their media ecosystem had protected them from. And once they kind of get exposed to it, all of a sudden, a lot of other things don't make sense. And, you know, I think that's a handful of people, but do you think this is moving the needle to getting some people to truly understand that this wasn't some false flag operation? This was not some peaceful protest that, you know, how dark this day was and how much worse it could have been, say, for a couple of wrong turns and a, or a couple of Capitol Police officers uh, in the right place doing the right thing? Yeah, important question and really hard to know about the, the, what the moving needle means in the short versus sort of the, the mid term, because right now, I mean, not a lot of people have not enough people have really seen this. And so you're right. Anecdotally, I hear as well some people saying, well, I didn't know that particular thing. I mean, it's fascinating that Fox News decided to start airing them after at first not doing it so as to be able to not have their people left out altogether. And maybe then they could kind of spin things the way they wanted to spin it. But it's been they, they sort of said, well, there's nothing new here, but it's not that easy any longer to say there's nothing new here because some of the stuff that's coming out is being spoken by Republicans and by inner circle Republicans. So there's, it's difficult to know right now. We're not taking these opinion polls that are going to be authoritative right now. What's really going to matter is what happens in advance, I think, of the midterm elections. Uh, that's extremely difficult to understand because people could conceivably turn against Donald Trump without turning against Republicans. It's an open question. Uh, you know, the Democrats, I believe, picked up seats uh, during Clinton's um, impeachment trial in, in midterm elections. So uh, that's uh, it's really difficult to answer about that larger, larger thing. Uh, and it's hard to know, too, once the dust clears, how then that media ecosystem, which is so essential, and you use that term, so essential, the media ecosystem, so many of us tailor our media ecosystem to suit our tastes. And they tell us sort of what we already wanted to know and what we already wanted to hear and reinforce that. It's going to be essential to know whether the media ecosystem eventually dissects, chops and dices what's out there and just goes and puts forward some kind of denial uh, and runs with that. Or whether they decide that they're going to maybe move away from Trump, but stick with the general message of Trumpism. And that's really an open question. We've mentioned history and you have talked, you've kind of dropped some other hearings that were of this ilk that kind of commanded the big stage. And it's interesting. We were talking beforehand. I think the, the, the knee jerk comparison for everybody is Watergate, just because there are a lot of similarities to the Nixon administration and some of the things we saw during the, the Trump administration. But when you kind of pan out, you know, you pointed out, we kind of had these things once a decade that really kind of grab at least a good portion of the public's uh, attention. Uh, you know, obviously Watergate, but Iran Contra, mm -hmm. McCarthy back in the 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we seem to have these things come across about once a decade. It's true. And I really think it's worth, you know, just doing that bird's eye or, or pan back view and taking a look like starting around the 50s. So it's like 70 years history. And that once a decade, the Army McCarthy hearings, that was a Senate subcommittee, not a House uh, select committee like we're looking at now. 
but Army versus McCarthy has got a lot of relevance. Um, uh, the Vietnam hearings, the Villabright hearings, which I uh, mentioned already in 1966, spanning a number of years in the Senate, really changed American attitudes, popular attitudes toward the Vietnam War. Watergate in the 70s, the 80s, you said Iran-Contra, also televised uh, in the daytime. The 90s, I mentioned briefly the Clinton impeachment because there was a Judiciary Committee hearing component and it was televised. Um, and it has some relevance to this. The 9-11 Commission in the 2000s, the Benghazi hearings in the teens, uh, except those, those affected people not by television, but by more reporting out on them. The thing is, you, I love what you said, that Watergate is like a knee-jerk reaction because um, it's so common for people to jump in and say, uh, oh, this is like history repeating itself. And it's not quite right. I mean, anyway, Mark Twain you know, said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. There can be a kind of resonance, a close resemblance, like a pattern between events. But even that is, I think, overstating what's happening here. I feel like January 6th and Watergate is more like a half rhyme or a slant rhyme, like you hear in hip hop or other poetry. When words are used that like sound alike, but they're not quite like Eminem rhyming more so wardrobe, orange robe, or Kendrick Lamar with Candy House and Standing Out. They're alike, but they're not alike. And our minds are really good at recognizing patterns. We seek that out. And that's January 6th and Watergate. But it's also January 6th and Army McCarthy and Iran-Contra and to a certain extent 9-11 and, and Benghazi. But the reason I bring this stuff up, in addition to that I'm fascinated by our, our excellence at and taste for pattern recognition, the reason I bring it up is because here's the frustration. With full rhymes, like in poetry or you know music, depending on the word, you can sometimes have a pretty good idea of what's coming next. Like if you hear the word touch in a rhyming scheme, it's a pretty good bet that the follow-up is going to be such or much. But with slant rhymes, you have no idea what's coming next because there are so many possibilities. And that's the way I would look at the slant rhyme between Watergate and January 6th. It's a lot of patterns to be recognized, but differences as well, and absolutely no way to project how things are gonna play out either in the short term or the long term by looking back at other historical events. So with that in mind, that's how I kind of like to look at this stuff of say, let's definitely look at the patterns, but observe the differences and be open to the idea that this is like a super cool thing, but not something that we, we can then project confidently, well, this is what's gonna happen because it happened like this already. And the Army McCarthy has maybe got more relevance in some ways because we're talking about objectives, right? For this, this set of hearings. And I think one of the objectives is to reach a broader section of the American mainstream and to illustrate what they're calling the big lie and how many Republicans were aware that it was a lie. So it's not just Democrats saying, hey, we think this is a lie. It's Republicans often in Trump's inner circle saying, yeah, we knew this wasn't true. Um, well, in the Army McCarthy hearing, it was about the first big lie, which was Joe McCarthy, who you know, first, just in a speech in West Virginia, said that there are, I've got a piece of paper right here, and he waved it in the air and said, there's 205 names of known communists who are working in the State Department and who are known to the State Department, but are still out there making policy. Um, and then the number went up and down, he varied a lot, and he never produced this piece of paper. In the Army McCarthy hearings, uh, Joe Welch, who is the Army's lawyer, pressed Roy Cohn on this and said, look, you need to come up with that piece of paper that you're saying has 130 names in the, ar in, in the army or in the, the uh, defense department who are communists, produce it by nightfall tonight. 
And McCarthy jumps in and he does a Trump-like move. It's a deflect. He goes on the attack and he attacks a young lawyer who works in, in uh, Joe Welch's private office and says, well, this guy was a member of the National Legal Guild, I want to say, which McCarthy said is known to be like the legal arm of the, the Communist Party. And Welch has had enough. And that's where the famous lines come from, where he says, at long last, or have you no sense of decency? Have you no decency left? He goes on the attack, and that's memorable. And that video clip is out there. But, but McCarthy never concedes. He doesn't actually say, yeah, you got me. His popularity plummets. And pretty soon he's out of the Senate. But that's an attempt to expose the big lie. And nobody ever says, OK, we admitted it. But people got the sense then that, OK, this didn't really happen. And that is a resonance, a half rhyme with what's going on now. It's an attempt to say, look, we're not going to give you us talking heads or Democrats saying this didn't happen. We're going to talk to, in their own words, Republicans in the inner circle who said this. You can't just keep on turning your back on that. That's where I think our McCarthy is such a relevant comparison and not just, you know, not just not just Watergate. Yeah. Time to take a break on KYW News Radio in depth. We will have more with Ben Berger right after this. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth chatting with Ben Berger, associate professor of political science at Swarthmore College, as we examine the January 6th public hearings. Do you think we will see out of these hearings just then, as I mentioned, we're recording this after the first half of the sessions. Uh, do you think we will see legal consequences for some people that you, you kind of knew had done some shady things, but have it's kind of been produced already that they willingly flaunted the law to try to shift the election? I mean, the guy that comes up to me is this lawyer, John Eastman. I don't think anyone had heard of. Uh, prior to, you know, Halloween of 2020. Uh, but I mean, this was a guy that just kept pushing and kept pushing and kept pushing. And uh, when he went before the committee, I think he took the fifth like 100 times. Hmm. And that's not an exaggeration. I, I, do you think we will see consequences for people from what we're learning here? There's been a lot of talk about the Justice Department is mm -hmm. working to get the transcripts as quick as possible from the committee. Uh, do you think we'll see, you know, significant uh, retribution or, or consequences, I should say, for people that it's kind of been drawn out, have done some pretty bad things? So hard to know. You know, I mean, I'm not an attorney and it's very difficult, difficult to project. I We were talking beforehand, too, about with Watergate, there's a burglary. And so burglary is kind of a known crime with like, here's the evidence of this thing, this physical stuff. And so they're going to, you know, serve uh, prison time. And with this, it's not the same thing. There hasn't been the same kind of smoking gun. There was also in Watergate too, the smoking gun of the Nixon tapes, which are discovered in during the hearing, they come to light. So it wasn't even known in advance. Here, they seem to have the evidence that they are, that they know already. And a lot of the American public knows that it's out there. Even if not everybody has seen it, people know that it's there. And so in terms of smoking guns, I've heard it bandied about the suggestion that perhaps there could be fraud charges pursued with relationship to the money, the $250 million that was raised by Trump and allies in the wake of his claims about the, the steal, stop the steal for a legal defense fund, that very little of it actually went to legal defense and they can track a money trail and that many of it went to line the pockets of 
essentially cronies, that the, the potentially there could be fraud charges uh, with that, that. But it's so difficult to know to pin down otherwise uh, if somebody perjured themselves, that's something that could um, uh, produce jail time potentially, but that's not really what people are talking about, perjury. So, and as far as Trump himself, you and I were talking before that it was the uh, the mobster, John Gotti, was originally called the Teflon Don because nothing seemed to stick to him. And that Trump has been called that sometimes too. I will make no predict- predictions about anything sticking to Donald Trump because so many times when um, experts thought that this was a sure thing and now this time some kind of charges are going to stick, uh, they didn't. So I've got no predictions about that whatsoever. Um, the idea of consequences, we also discussed before, the most likely one that we know is happening already, it's the actual physical perpetrators, like a burglary at the Watergate Hotel, the ones who actually broke into uh, the Capitol and the ones who actually assaulted police officers. That'll you know come out of it. But I wouldn't be surprised if the elite largely skate, skate by. With still more hearings to come, is there anything specific you're looking for? We kind of talked about how these hearings have kind of set the table going forward. Uh, Is there anything you're kind of interested to see how it's presented? If there is uh, new evidence that that we don't know Uh, anything, you're just kind of going to be keeping your your eyes or your ears open for uh, in these next hearings. Well, with with all the humility of someone who does not know what they're going to do, what the, the committee is going to do, I'll say, you know, I don't know. I just am guessing that they don't actually have a new smoke smoking gun, the equivalent of which was the Watergate papers, uh, which this aide Butterfield wound up. Uh, he didn't want to, but he when Aplin pressed on it, he acknowledged that there was a taping system. And then, you know, people, a lot of people were shocked by this. And then there was the whole battle of the Nixon versus the Supreme Court on whether he had to release the tapes. Uh, and there was the Saturday night massacre when he kept on firing or having people resign who were supposed to go and, and get the tapes. I doubt there's going to be that kind of smoking gun, but maybe there will be. I just doubt it. Um, Carl Bernstein, the you know, super influential journalist during Watergate, said recently that there was a smoking gun with the audio, audio tape of, of Donald Trump pressuring Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffenberger to find 11,780 votes that were needed for Trump to win Georgia. And he is scheduled to testify in this week's hearing, Raffenberger. So uh, as to whether that's really the kind of smoking gun that would turn the tide against Trump, I kind of think it's unlikely in partly because we've known about this for a year and a half, uh, and it hasn't generated widespread outrage among Trump supporters. Um, also, because <laughs> I shouldn't laugh about this, but Trump himself indicated it back in 2016 that he said, if, I, if there was a smoking gun, if I actually shot somebody on Fifth Avenue, I wouldn't lose any voters. So he's not going to go and back down because of those kind of charges. But what I am interested in is how that is going to tie in to the larger narrative this committee is constructing and crafting about a long-term and known and intentional strategy that many people in the inner circle knew about and rejected, but that many people in the inner circle and Republican lawmakers said, okay, we're going to be on board with this without any kind of evidence. How this, this testimony ties into this larger thing that there were many times in which Donald Trump um, did things that were subversive, that tried to go and subvert the will of the people, that tried to do anything needed to find votes, to create votes, to discard votes, um, to win the election. That's the narrative that they want to put out there. Not just that there was a lie, but there was 
other kinds of wrongdoing. And I mean, and it's all about then how it's tied in, what kind of story is told. You know, uh, there is a, a, a journalist and historian um, who was written about Watergate. Uh, it's uh, Garrett Graff, who it is. And he said about Watergate that really a big part of the aim was not just about any particular criminal action breaking to the White House, but illustrating a mindset that was pervasive in the Nixon White House, uh, um, a kind of criminal mindset or a conspiratorial mindset. Um, I think that is what is trying to be illustrated here, not just one particular act, because for sure it hasn't even focused so much on January 6th itself. They're looking at all kinds of things that happened beforehand and afterwards. And when they go to Raffenberger, they're going to go significantly back into November. So I think they're trying to illustrate a mindset that was pervasive. And the Democrats on the committee probably want to say, well, look, um, everybody in the mainstream, you need to get out and vote in the next election because a lot of Republicans in government right now were supportive and tied into this mindset. And I think the Republicans, Cheney and Kinzinger, uh, want to say, look, Republicans reject this kind of thing. And let's steer a course that's more like a traditional sort of republicanism and conservatism. Um, so that's what I'm really curious to see is how the things that they're going to present are presented and what kind of story they wind up telling, how they tie it together in a bow. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. <laughs>